All right. Hey, Rockbridge, my name is uh, Matt, and I just want to welcome you at all six of our physical locations. And then if you're joining us online through online connections, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. You're here on a great weekend. We are wrapping up a series that we've been in since Easter called Live No Lies, and we'll jump into our summer series uh, next weekend. But today, we're going to talk about something that, that everybody's interested in. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to be a Christ follower yet or really a devout Christian or anything. Everybody is interested in this subject. And there's a lot of lies that go around this subject. Because what we said in the beginning of this series is that you and I have this capacity to believe something is true and yet we can live the opposite of that, or we can live the lie that the truth counteracts. And that's just something crazy about human nature, something crazy about you and I, but that God doesn't want that for us, that one of the greatest dangers the Bible would say for you and I is not that something bad would happen to us, but that we would believe a deception or we would believe a lie and then live out the ramifications of that lie. So today we're going to unpack something that is so prevalent, but we're so interested in. There's not a single person here that if I said, hey, do you want to be happy, you would not, you would, everybody, 100% of us would raise our hands. We, we pray towards that. We work towards that. We choose how to spend time with people or without people or in certain pursuits because we think it will make us happy. And yet there are countless numbers of lies and deceptions about our happiness and about our joy. In fact, for most of us, if we've got scars in our life, so to speak, because of paths we took that we wish we hadn't have taken, the reason we took that path initially is because we thought doing that would make us happy. And maybe it did for an hour or three hours or three days or three months, but then it, the truth caught up to us and, and, and what made us happy for a moment then made us miserable for a little while. And we've got the scars, the stories, et cetera, to prove it. And, and, and so we need to end this, end this series and talk about something so important because happiness is important to all of us. And, and I just want to jump into this and expose uh, about five of the big lies about joy and happiness. And, and again, some of these, when I put them up there, you're going to be tempted to maybe disagree with me. That's great. That's fine. Just bear, just bear with us. But when we talk about some of the lies about joy and happiness, here's what we're talking about. Here's number one, that pleasure, and I'm going to use pleasure, joy, and happiness sort of interchangeably, that pleasure or joy or happiness is a problem. And there's actually many Christians who sort of, if something feels good, we assume something's wrong with it automatically. We, uh, we, we sort of make this statement, God will say this, I've preached this and I was wrong when I did it. I didn't fully understand the Word of God. We'll, we'll say things like, God wants you to be holy, not happy, right? And, and so there's some Christians that, you know, you, just the countenance, the whole thought of Christianity is like, man, if, there's, if it feels good or if something's good or if I'm happy, maybe something's wrong with it. And then that just comes maybe from this heavy dose of legalism and guilt and shame that a lot of churches are marked with. In fact, one of the great preachers of the 20th century is a British guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said one of the reasons people are leaving churches is because Christians do not exhibit the joy and the happiness that they should. A second lie, though, is a lot of us believe that God 
is a cosmic killjoy. Many non-Christians, when you say, hey, why don't you become a Christian? It's not the whole, is God existing? It's like, well, I just don't think, at the bottom line is God's not for my happiness. Like if I chose God, I would be choosing against what makes me happy. I would have to start. I would have to stop. I would have to curtail. I would have to change. And, and so we just sort of look at God, and this is a big satanic lie, which we looked at in week two, that God is just out to kind of kill the good mood or kill what's fun or kill what brings happiness. That's lie number two. Number three is some people, we believe this, most of us do, I am the best authority about how I can be happy. That, hey, I am the best, I know best what will make me happy. And we propagate this as as parents, as a society, when we say, oh, just follow your heart. And then we'll, then we'll do something stupid and we'll say, oh, bless your heart, right? You know, so, so we just, we propagate that because, and I, and I use this example all the time, but you know, Krispy Kreme makes me happy. It really does. But I can't stop it. Just one chocolate covered with white cream in the middle, right? And I eat about five of them and the best like, what's wrong with you? I'm like in a sugar coma. I'm miserable, right? But you know, five donuts ago, I was convinced Krispy Kreme made me happy and then it made me miserable. And, and some of us could replace Krispy Kreme with sex. We could replace it with alcohol and drugs. We could replace it with money and our jobs. And we could add to that list, right? So the, I mean, am I really the best authority? Because haven't all of us, yes, I followed my heart and I thought it would make me happy and in the end it made me something less than. And then here's an add-on to that, another lie, <clears throat> fourth big lie, that God is supposed to provide me with what makes me happy. And there's many Christians and non-Christians who believe that, that if there's a big God upstairs and he's all-powerful and he's all-knowing, good God should give good things to his good people. And that God, and there's a half-truth in here, and we'll see that as we, we, we navigate through our scripture, but that, hey, God, if, if money makes me happy, then God should ensure I get the job or I should get the promotion. If you know, having a girlfriend, having a boyfriend makes me happy, and I don't want to be lonely, God, and I'm scared of all that, then that's God's job is to use his power, to use his wisdom, and give me good things. And when he doesn't, then God's the cosmic killjoy, right? It just perpetuates. And then the fifth one, which is really prevalent in our, in our culture now, is that joy and happiness should be quick and easy. It's like going through the drive-thru, right? It should be quick and easy. It should be microwavable. It should be immediate. And if, if it's hard, it can't make, then if something is hard, then happiness can't be involved with hard. Uh, and so joy and happiness should be quick and easy. Those are the five big ones. And we, and we all sort of have to navigate those and deal with those. And I just want to share a verse with you that to me just sort of blows up this notion about happiness and joy and pleasure in God. And it comes from 2 Corinthians. This isn't our main passage today. We're going to be in the Old Testament today. But this verse is insightful because you got Paul who's writing this letter to the church at Corinth, and the church at Corinth was messed up. And, they, and, they, and Paul was having to say some hard things, some harsh things to correct some bad things, right? And, and, and he understands that they could think that he's just the, the dictator or he's just the tough guy or he's the mean parent or, or, or the harsh pastor. And so Paul comes to them and he says, listen, I do not mean that we lord it over your face. So I'm not trying to control or dominate or dictate anything, but we are workers with you for your joy. 
because you stand firm in your faith. So faith in God and having joy are not opposites. They're related. Now, we have to work for it. And I just thought, man, what if as Christ followers, what if as a people of God, we, you know, our, we're, we're trying to work for each other's joy. We're trying to work for each other's happiness. That's the motive of the messages. That's the motive of our church. Because let me tell you something, we, you know, we're, we're charged as a church, right, to go out and share the gospel, share the good news. We want to see more people come to faith in Christ. What if, you know, we saw it through the lens of, hey, we're trying to maximize people's joy and people's happiness. So all I want you to see at this point is this. The Bible it connects maximum joy with deep and abiding faith in God. In fact, there's an Old Testament prophet named Habakkuk who connects this in a very potent and powerful way. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you something. I'm going to read this prophetic word. It's in Habakkuk chapter 3, and you're not going to want to believe it. I'm not going to want to believe it. There's probably something going on in your life or has gone in on in your life or is about to go on in your life, and, and this verse is going to seem like it's not true, and you're going to be tempted not to believe this verse, but I just want us to hold it. Ask for help right now from the Holy Spirit. Help me see the truth of this verse, and then we'll work forward from there. So here it is, Habakkuk chapter 3, 17 and 18. Here's what it says, even though... Even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, yet I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Here's what he's saying. Even though my circumstances are horrible, even though the doctor told me bad news, even though the economy is in the ditch, I could lose my job, even though something bad is going on in the world, even though something bad happened to me, I can still have joy, I can still rejoice in the Lord. That's who he is, and that's how good he is. Uh, but, but let me tell you something. Either you're in a situation where you don't want to believe that, or you don't understand it, or you're not, you don't see it. You will be, or you have been. And what we just want to stop and just ponder for a moment together is that God offers in himself Rejoice in the Lord, joyful in the God of my salvation. God offers a joy and a happiness that's even though. Even though bad things happen, even though the agriculture doesn't work the way it's supposed to, even though things don't go my way today or in this moment or in this time, even though that may be the case, I can still have joy and happiness in the Lord. Now, here's the question. Do we believe this? Because I fundamentally believe if we're to understand the scope and the height and the depth of what is being offered to us by our God and Savior, that we have to see that he offers us an even though joy and happiness. Even though bad things happen, even though I didn't get what I want, even though today didn't go my way, even still I can have happiness and joy in the Lord. 
Now, let me say something. There is a whole subculture. Soon as you turn your computer off today or walk out of your building today, everything out there says this is an absolute joke and an absolute lie. You can't be happy if you have cancer. You can't be happy if she breaks up with you. You can't be happy unless you make a certain amount of money, drive a certain type of car, and live in a certain type of house. You can't be happy. And if God isn't giving you those things, then God is the problem. That's the lie that exists in our culture. That's the lie that we're tempted to, to, to believe hook, line, and sinker. But I just want to ask, what if we believed the Word of God just because it's the Word of God and believe that there is such a thing as an even though joy and happiness? Then would we not pursue that kind of happiness and joy in the Lord? Because here's what I know. We'll all pursue something that we think will make us happy but could be taken from us. We'll all pursue happiness maybe in money, maybe in popularity, maybe in possessions, maybe in status. Even though we can lose money, we can lose status, and we can lose popularity, we'll still go after it, won't we? So God is saying, I offer you an even though joy and happiness, if we believe it, shouldn't we pursue it? with at least some of the same vigor and determination that we pursue happiness in materialism or in popularity or in some possession or in some hobby? I think we should, and the Word of God will support it. So we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah, one of my favorite chapters in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 8. If you get to the book of Psalms, you've gone a little bit too far, just come back a little bit. Or you can uh, open up your device or you can follow along with me. Let me give you this situation. A group of uh, Jewish people have returned from exile. And they come back and they start rebuilding the wall around the city. Leaders Nehemiah and Ezra are instrumental in this. And, and, then, and then they come together and they realize that they have strayed from God's commands. They've strayed from God's law. They've strayed from things. And what we're going to see is a progressive growth to an incredibly happy celebration. What we're going to see is a group of people find something in God that is incredibly satisfying, that is incredibly happifying. I, made up, I think that's a made-up word. Happifying. It makes us happy. So we're going to want to join them together with them. So if you have your Bibles, again, Nehemiah chapter 8, we'll start reading in verse 1. Here's what it says. All the people gathered together at the square in front of the water gate. They asked the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had given Israel. And this is all significant. So we're talking mainly about the first five books of the Old Testament. And, and listen to what they do. On the first day of the seventh month, the priest uh, Ezra brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could listen with understanding. And they listen to the law of Moses. They listened to these first five books, or, or the Deuteronomy law, what was being read, and, and, and they're in this process of listening. And, and then, and, you know, I know this, and listen, most of us are like, that doesn't sound like it's gonna make anybody happy. I mean, if I just opened up the Ten Commandments and start re reading it, some people would be, okay, the Ten Commandments, that's a sign of respect. A lot of us would come immediately under conviction, right? 
And then some of us look at the law of God, like, you know, those user agreements. So when you do something on the internet, it says, you just scroll through it real quick and hit agree, right? We don't want to go through those details. We don't want to read that fine print, right? So, so it's like, how, how does this produce happiness? And how is this going to produce happiness? So we got to journey with them for a little bit. Understand this. The book of the law of Moses is something that God gave Israel. He gave Israel not as a requirement, but as an, as an example that they were his people. The law was a sign of relationship, right? The law was a sign uh, and a symbol and a, and a roadmap for how to be under God's authority, how to fulfill their creative purpose, and how to enjoy God. So the law is, a, is an expression of the relationship, okay? And, and use it this way, okay? When you start dating someone or you get married to someone, there's rules that govern your relationship. There's rules, and the rules are not designed to squash the joy of the relationship, but rather to maximize the joy of the relationship. When you get a dog and you have rules for your dog or a leash for your dog or a yard with a fence for your dog, the leash and the fence are not designed to eliminate the joy, but to maintain the safety and to protect your dog. Right? So rules are sign of relationship. Look at how the Ten Commandments are given. They don't start with thou shalt not. They start with this. The Lord spoke these words. I am the Lord your God. I am your God. I am your God. I brought you up out of Egypt. I rescued you from bondage. I rescued you from tyranny. I brought you up out of the place of slavery. Therefore, do not have any other gods besides me because I am for you. So in the people of Israel, in Nehemiah's day, hear the law of God read over them and spoken to them, they are reminded that they are in a relationship with this all-powerful, all-knowing God, that they are under his authority and that maximum freedom and maximum joy is found underneath the Lord's law and in relationship with God. This is what leads David to say this, your decrees, your law are my delight and my counselors, they show me how to live my life the way God intends for it to be lived. And delight and law and guidance are not against our happiness. And so the people are in a renewal state being reminded of that. So, so look at it this way. I'll show you just a picture of a baseball bat, right? Now, if we just stumbled upon this and we had no knowledge of the game of baseball, we would be, you know, what are the rules for this bat? And, and what, is, what is the purpose of this bat? And how is this bat supposed to operate, right? We might even call it a bat. We might call it a stick, right? We wouldn't know what it was for. So when we, but we, we all know this, we all, because we have understanding, we have insight, this is used to hit a baseball in a game, and when it's used for its purpose, there's a lot of fun, there's a lot of joy, there's a lot of freedom. However, we could also tell stories of where a baseball bat has been used for not its purpose. It's baseball bats have been used to commit crimes. Baseball bats have been used to destroy property. Baseball bats have been used to injure and or kill other people. And you and I are like that. 
We were created for a specific purpose. And that purpose and our identity underneath the authority of God is where maximum joy and freedom and favor and happiness are found. But you and I have taken ourselves and we've gone out of bounds of the fence of God's law. We've gone out of bounds and strayed away from what God intended us to do and how God intended us to live. And what happens when we do that is destructive, is deadly, is defeating. And so the people of God, when David says, your decrees are my delight and my counselors, he's saying, when I read your law, I know why I exist. So the reading of the law back to Nehemiah continues. While he was facing the square in front of the water gate, he read out of it from daybreak until noon. Most of us are like, man, I hope the service lasts about an hour. And, we're, and, and, you're tell, and, and some of you are like, and you're telling me they're going to leave this thing happy? Matt, I'd be making signals to you while you're preaching, right? Just hold my thought, right? But I'm just, this is what it says. So he read from daybreak until noon before the men, the women, and those who could understand. There's that word understanding again. All the people listen attentively to the book of the law. They're soaking it in. They're hungry. Ezra opened the book in full view of all the people since he was elevated above everyone on some kind of platform. As he opened it up, all the people stood up. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and with their hands uplifted, all the people said, Amen, Amen. Then they knelt low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read out of the book of the law, translating and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. Now, we're on a journey to joy in this passage, and some of you are like, I don't see it. They're reading the law. They're reading from daybreak until noon. They're standing. They're having to think. They're kneeling. They're, and we're, 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 so here's where we have to start to differentiate and understand the type of joy, the type of happiness, the type of pleasure God wants us to give. See, there's, this is serious joy we're after. We're after serious joy, steadfast joy, not light and superficial. So much of the world is offering this. And then we get desensitized. And we think, man, God ought to, you know, it's, it's like the difference between a well-cooked steak and a stale little Debbie, right? And so it, we're after serious joy here. And serious joy is not a threat to true happiness. Serious joy is just a threat to stupidity. It's very God-centered versus self and situational. See, a lot of us, when we think of joy, we look in the mirror and we look at our situation, what we're facing, what we're dealing with, what's going on in our lives. And what you're seeing happen here from daybreak till noon is it is very centered upon God, very focused upon God. And again, God is not against our joy. We see there's focused effort. There's, there's discipline involved. It's not this immediate thing of, a, of like a good feeling when you ride a roller coaster. It takes focused effort and discipline versus immediate. And we see there's understanding involved. They're having to grow in their understanding of God versus ignorance. See, a lot of us, our happiness and our joy is based on ignorance, right? Right? I mean, can you, like, just picture yourself going skydiving. 
And man, you jump out of that plane and it's exhilarating and you are so excited. And then you pull the ripcord and it doesn't open. Your joy was built on ignorance. Imagine you come upon a river and there's like a canoe and paddles and you're like, man, this is going to be awesome. Let's jump in the canoe and let's paddle. And you're just having a great time. And then you start to hear this rumble and this roar and the rapids start pick up in pace. And then you realize you're about to go off a waterfall. You were happy, but it was built on ignorance. And I think that's a lot of us. Is the world wants us to be light and superficial, self and situational, immediate and ignorant. And God's working for something deeper and longer lasting. So the story in Nehemiah continues. Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest, and the scribe and the Levites who were instructing the people said to all of them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Holy to the Lord your God. Now, a lot of us, Holiness or happiness, they're, 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 i got to choose. God wants me to be holy, not happy. That's not what the text is going to teach us today. Because then the leaders say, don't mourn and don't weep. For all the people were weeping as they heard the words of the law. Now, what they're hearing is they hear the words of the law. They're hearing, we haven't lived the way God intended us to live. We're the baseball bat that instead of hitting baseballs, we were destructive. And we were deadly. That's what they're hearing. And so they mourn and they weep. They're under conviction. And, and we're still like, okay, how is this going to make happy? How is this going to make joy? So, so here's what we need to understand. This is not quick and easy. God is after deep and abiding joy. God is after a joy and a happiness that is deeper and longer lasting than a good time on a Friday night. God is after a deeper, an abiding joy that is deeper, longer lasting than, hey, today was a good day at work. The weather was nice. I'm happy. So, so let me just stop and, and back up for a second. I fundamentally believe the reason so many people, so many of us are quickly bothered, quickly angered, and easily triggered is that our joy source is just cheap and easy and also fragile. When I say and we say we're working for each other's joy, quoting Paul in 2 Corinthians 1.24, we are after deep and abiding joy that's not fragile. It's tough. It's resilient. It's gritty. It can survive. It's even though joy and happiness. And this is why pleasure, joy, and happiness can act as like a whistleblower on our heart. Because hear me, you were created <coughs> to have joy and pleasure. God gave you that ability. On the seven days of creation, each after each act of creation, God blessed. God saw that it was good. So the problem is not that something is pleasurable. The problem is maybe the source of our pleasure or the treasure that brings us pleasure is wrong. So the problem is not pleasure, it's treasure. That I'm drawing pleasure from the wrong treasure. I'm drawing pleasure from something that's fragile or something that is not of God. And what I see a lot of us do is exactly what Ezra and the priest told the people to, to not do. They said, stop mourning and stop weeping. Because a lot of Christians, a lot of people in the church, we stop 
or we settle in the pursuit for God-given, God-centered joy and happiness. We stop too soon. We get to first base, but don't go to second and third. We pull up and we hold back. And what we need to see and what we need to embrace is this notion, this vision of even though joy and happiness, and don't settle and don't stop, but pursue it. If you're convinced and if you believe God is for your joy and that in God you can have this even though joy and happiness, then don't pull up short. Here's where we tend to pull up stop. Here's where we tend to stop and pull up short. Some of us just stop. God exists. I believe in him. Now I'm going to go live my life. Some of us stop that, hey, I want God to help me with my life and my plans and my problems. And it's just God, me, and my deal. God, me, and my deal, for better or for worse. Some of us stop with God and conviction of sin. You know, it's like, hey, I'm under conviction. God's moving in my life. Don't stop at conviction because there's something past conviction. Yes, conviction of sin is needed, but conviction of sin can lead to that deeper abiding joy as we're going to see with our friends here in Nehemiah 8. Some of us stop at God and the forgiveness of sin. Some of us just say, hey, I'm forgiven, and we just stop. Some of us stop at God in heaven someday, but in the in-between, man, it's just, right? And, And then some of us, It's God and duty versus delight. As I'm just doing my duty as a Christian, I'm just coming to church, I'm reading my Bible, I'm praying my prayers. And it's a duty, it's a box to check, it's what we're supposed to do versus God and delight. So, what happens to our crowd? They're crying, they're mourning, they're under conviction, they realize they've disobeyed, they realize they've strayed outside the boundaries of the relationship that God established when He rescued them out of bondage and out of slavery. And then the leaders say to them, Here's what we want you to do we don't want you to mourn or weep anymore. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you made some, you, you sinned and you missed, but here's what we want you to do we want you to go and eat what is rich, go, go have a great meal. Drink what is sweet. Go use those taste buds that God gave you. Why did God give you taste buds? And send portions to those who have nothing prepared. There's some people among you that don't have some things. Be generous. Be gracious to them. Since today is holy to our Lord, holiness and happiness are woven together in our text. Do not grieve because, here it is, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now look, it's the joy of the Lord that God himself is infinitely happy and joyous. God in himself is pleasurable. God in himself is greatly happy, greatly pleased. And that will be your strength or that will be your stronghold. You are invited in to the eternal bliss, the eternal exuberance, the eternal joy of God. God is not mad. God is not frustrated. God is not wringing his hands. God is madly in love with you. You have come back to him, so enjoy his happiness. It's like this. You ever had like a bad day and you're, on, and you, and you're going home? I'll, t- I'll just tell you, like in, in our house, okay, you have a bad day and I come home and usually the first person, sorry, it's not first person, first dog, the first thing that meets me at the door is our dog, Bella. There has never been a day in my life when I have not come home and that dog has not been overjoyed to see me. And I don't know why, but that makes me happy, right? And then I see my family and my kids, and, 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 but, but there's a joy that that dog has that I catch. 
Same thing. Like my kids come home and, hey, dad, 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 let me tell you what happened. Every Man, I, and it doesn't matter what happened to me, I'm having joy because they're having joy. And those are finite creatures. We're talking about an eternal God who is so happy when his kids come back to him. We're talking about an omnipotent, omnipresent Father, Son, Holy Spirit who is madly in love, who wants to establish relationship. And when you and I enjoy him or come into his presence, there is nothing but joy and delight. And he wants us to be caught up in that so that that is our strength. That word is literally stronghold. That means nothing can take you out of that joy unless you and I let it. But if we're always in this, we're happy and nothing can touch it. And, and so the Levites, back to our text, the Levites quiet all the people saying, be still since today is holy. Do not grieve. You're supposed to be happy today. The joy of the Lord is here. Then all the people began to eat and drink, send portions and have a great celebration because they had understood the words that were explained to them. So three things happen. Look, enjoy good and good things, knowing though that they're not ultimate. The danger is when we think the good things God allows us to have are the ultimate things that we're supposed to have, right? So enjoy good things. They're just like signposts pointing to the forever joy, the joy of the Lord. Be generous. Be a blessing to others. Sacrifice. Give. Help others. The reason some of us don't serve, don't sacrifice, and don't give is because we think serving, sacrificing, and giving is a threat to our happiness. If God is your happiness, then you will naturally, or should I say supernaturally, serve and give and share and sacrifice because you have nothing to lose because you already have everything in Christ. And then he says this, don't grieve. God is happy. He is our joy and strength. So celebrate God. So what happened to our people over the course of this daybreak to noon experience? Well, something gets repeated in the text that we can't miss. It's their understanding of God grew. And there's a word that really personifies the completeness of God. And the word is his glory. And his glory is the weight of his nature. It's the totality of who he is. His glory includes understanding of his love, his graciousness, his justice, his holiness, his magnificence, his majesty, his mercy, his omnipotence, his sovereignty, his providential workings. His glory is the sum total of who he is. And we need to start understanding that the more we get in touch with and feel the weight of his glory, the happier you and I become. Let's go to our friend Moses in the book of Exodus. Moses is talking to God right before they go to the promised land. And he's like, God, I'm not, let's not go to the promised land. I want to see your glory. He said, I will, God says, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So we see Moses' request for the glory of God, and God says, I will speak my attributes. I will speak my character over you. 
And then it happens. In Exodus 34, the Lord passed in front of Moses, and he says, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion. He speaks his name and his attributes over, Mo- over Moses. He says, I'm the God of compassion and mercy. I'm slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And this experience of God's glory brings Moses great joy and happiness. What's happening in Nehemiah 8 is their understanding of who God is is growing as the law of God is read, as it's explained, as they listen attentively, and as their weight of God's glory sits heavier and heavier upon their heart. Yes, they mourn, but then they're called to have joy and they're called to celebrate because God is over and abundantly joyous in his state of glory. So I say it this way, understanding and sensing, understanding, sensing, and receiving God more correctly and completely, sensing his glory brings deep and abiding joy. It's happifying. The question I'll go back is, do you believe that? Because if you believe that, you become a pursuer of God's glory more than money. You become a pursuer of God's glory more than status. You become a pursuer of God's glory more than anything that world out that door or out your door offers you. This is why heaven will be an unending expanse of joy and happiness because our experience of God will be unending, unfiltered, and unpolluted by sin and brokenness. This is why the Psalms says in Psalm 1611, you reveal the path of life to me, God. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. This is why on the last big prayer that Jesus prays, he prays the most loving thing he can pray is that his glory will be known by his people. Listen to what he says. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So when does eternal life begin? When you die? When you come to know Christ. So right now, if you're a Christ follower, eternal life has begun. And as you grow to know Christ, you grow to know his glory, and that increases your joy, that increases your happiness. This is what he says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Eternal life is not necessarily I go to heaven when I die. Eternal life is I know God and I'm fully alive as I grow and know him in his glory. And then he prays this. He says, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am so they will see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. You and I have got to see that experiencing, knowing, sensing, seeing his glory is the path to maximum joy and happiness. It's why we were created. And understand sin now. Understand sin. Because here's the lie, and we talked about this in week one. Here's the lie. God is telling you not to do things, and what he's telling you not to do is against you being happy. It's not how the Bible portrays it. Romans 3.23, 
All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. If the glory of God and experiencing it, sensing it, knowing it, if the glory of God is what maximizes my happiness, what maximizes my joy, when I sin, I am settling for less joy, for less happiness, for less than God's best. What if you saw your sin and I saw my sin through that lens? Suddenly I become relentless and ruthless about fighting my sin because my sin robs me of sight of God's glory. So we're all, everybody here wants to be happy. Do you believe your highest happiness is found in the glory of God? If you do, I'll give you four suggestions, then we'll close. Number one, just ask God for help. God, show me your glory like Moses. God, show me what it means. You have to. We have to give God attention. We have to get our eyes off ourselves, our eyes off our circumstances, and put the eyes of our heart, the eyes of faith upon him. That's why it was noon till daybreak. It takes a little bit of time to get our attention off ourselves, to get our attention off our circumstances. It's why we have to devote time to get our attention fixated. We have to see adversity not as a threat to our joy, but as a way to go deeper into the joy of the Lord as our strength. And then ultimately we have to land on an attribute or the attributes of God. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Knowing something about God deepens our appreciation for Him and His glory. So it works like this. When Beth and I are in the middle of our adoption process and things went south or crazy in the courts in Ethiopia, she and I are both led by the Lord, by the Holy Spirit, to pray for justice. Justice is an attribute of God. In, in understanding God's justice, we get a sense, a greater sense of his glory. And then peace comes upon us and joy comes upon us. And we're praying the name of God because of the justice that God gives. See that? When bad things happen and you're tempted to think God's not in control, you need to land, I need to land on the sovereign grace and goodness of God and trust that God has a plan and trust that God hasn't lost control. When you're overwhelmed with your sinfulness, you meditate, you put your attention on God's grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy, God's grace and mercy, until your heart gets some exuberance about it that comes from the weight of understanding the depth of God's grace and the depth of God's mercy. So here's our invitation. It comes from Psalm 43, 4. I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. Go there's action and intentionality involved. Altar, there's some serious business that goes down on altars. Some things have to die. Some things have to be let go. Some things have to be surrendered. But the outcome is God, my exceeding joy. Wherever you are, would you come to an altar right now and pursue God? in his glory. What if we believed maximum joy 
is found in greater understanding of the glory of God. We pray together. God, I just want to ask you to give us all a moment at your altar in our hearts. Maybe there are some things that we die to right now, that we let go of right now, that we repent of right now. Maybe, God, there's a confession, an admission that we have fallen for a lie or a deception around what it means to be happy. God, I pray right now there would be a birth of belief that our highest joy and happiness is found when we're caught up in your glory. And I pray, God, as we're at the altar now, we would say, God, you are, you are my exceeding joy. This we pray, Lord, in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.